This is SB Nation Radio. The next generation of sports radio. Kelly's going to run right. He heads to the goal line. Does he break the plane? He does! Touchdown, Ole Miss! This is College Football Game Day. Roberts is in the shotgun. He takes the snap. He runs to the left. It's a sweep. He's to the four, to the He's three. In. He's in. Touchdown, Michigan! Here are your hosts, Rich Sermonello and Joe Lisi. Rolling into week number two of the college football season. The stage is set. The battle at Bristol. NASCAR meets college football later tonight, 8 p.m. It's on ABC. Doesn't get better than this. Rich Sermonello, we have a brand new top 25. And oh, by the way, history in the making tonight in Bristol. 150,000 fans to watch Virginia Tech and Tennessee. Should be a fantastic game. Should be a fantastic sight. I've never seen anything like this before. I know people who have been to that uh, racetrack. They've seen NASCAR events. You combine that setting with college football, it's the perfect venue for Week 2. Not as sexy as a slate as we had last week, but I mean front and center stage later tonight. A classic ACC-SEC battle. Can Tennessee regain the momentum lost in last week's victory over Appalachia? State, an overtime win where Appalachian State pushed the Volunteers to the limit. We'll have to wait and see. Ritual and I will break that game down a little bit later in the broadcast. We have a great show planned for you today at 10.31 Eastern Time. We'll be joined by former Virginia Tech quarterback Sean Glennon. We'll get his take on what the Hokies have to do to pick up that victory later tonight against Tennessee. 11.15 Eastern Time. We'll be joined by former Tennessee running back Aaron Hayden. We'll get Aaron Hayden's take on the volunteers in that uh, mindset after that uh, win last week over Appalachian State. Can Butch Jones get this crew emotionally involved into this ball game, or is this going to be a trend that we're going to see later in the season? We'll get Aaron's take on that. But, Rich, when you look at this situation overall in week number two, I mean, some marquee names taking front and center stage. One of those names played last night, Lamar Jackson, a Heisman-type performance last week five touchdowns he now has 13 touchdowns in two games a dominating 62 to 28 performance over Syracuse this guy front and center can really take the Cardinals to the next level for those Joe who thought that Lamar Jackson in week one might have been the product of his opponent which was the Charlotte 49ers. You had to have watched that game last night uh, in the Carrier Dome. Yeah, Syracuse is not a top-notch ACC team. They're still rebuilding under Dino Babers, but that was an ACC football team that he absolutely shredded through the air, on the ground, a spectacular player. I'll continue to say it. To me, he is Louisville's version of RG3. He has every bit as much athleticism, and I know we'll cover it next Saturday, Joe, but I already can't wait to see that matchup of Louisville versus Florida State, which could propel Lamar Jackson into the stratosphere. You mentioned Propel. I mean, this is a team in Louisville that was, I want to say, going under the radar. We knew the ability of Lamar Jackson and what he brought to the table last year, a little bit inconsistent in terms of his reads and progressions, but we saw week number one, he is a more confident quarterback under Bobby Petrino. He knows where he wants to go with the football. Eight total touchdowns in that dominating home victory last week against Charlotte. He follows that up last night with a solid 
solid, solid road performance. I mean, this kid mm-hmm. looked like he was at 120 rating in terms of EA Sports while everybody else was at about 80 yeah. because he was all over the field. And I don't want to say it yet, but look out Greg Ward Jr., look out Deshaun mm-hmm. Watson, and look out DeAndre Francois because Louisville and Bobby Petrino could be the fly in the ointment to knock you out of your national title hopes. Yeah, and to me, what stands out is you know we we could look at if you, the highlight reel plays are going to be him leaping over defensive players. We saw that last night. Him just kind of coasting at what looks to be a different speed than the defense. But what really has impressed me, and I followed him very closely in his rookie year of 2015, Joe tremendously poised for a true sophomore, a kid just two years removed from high school, he seems like he doesn't really even understand how spectacular he's been. I don't sense that he's rattled. And again, next week at Papa John's, I think he's ready for that moment against Florida State. So this kid looks like the total package. Still a little raw as a passer. That's going to come. That may not really fully bloom until his junior year. But the athleticism and the poise, man, that is that is a really difficult package for defenses to defend. And you saw it last night. He did have some passes where he forced into coverage. One uh, late in the, in the second quarter that led to a turnover that allowed Syracuse to score off of that and cut the deficit. It was about a 14-point game for Mo- much of the uh, two quarters and, and into the third, and then in the fourth quarter, just the dominance of Louisville took over. But I think for Louisville to take the next step, uh, Rich, in, in terms of making an ACC run, they need this defense led by Josh Harvey Clemens and Devontae Fields and their mm-hmm. linebacker Kelsey to, to really step up. We saw it last year against Florida State. They were played the Seminoles very tough. They were down by a point at halftime. They were in that game, and then in the second and half the Seminoles made plays to really pull away in that ball game but this this game is very interesting next week and Bobby uh, Petrino is the type of coach that sort of savors this type of role as the underdog and he also savors being the original last chance you. I, I, you know, you mentioned a couple of kids that began their careers elsewhere, had problems away from the field. Bobby Petrino at Louisville has become that, that place, that way station for the Devontae Fields to resurrect his career and prepare for the NFL for Josh Harvey Clemens. Same situation. Kids like playing for Bobby Petrino. Sometimes kids that have had problems away from the field. They like playing for Bobby. They like playing for Todd Grantham, the defensive coordinator. So Louisville has become sort of an it place in terms of the ACC. And and, and I, I look at the Big 12. How bad does the Big 12 look that a few years ago when they had an opportunity to invite Louisville, not invite West Virginia, that they passed on the Cardinals, to me, is an egregious mistake for Bob Bowlesby in that conference. That's a great point. We have a, a great show planned, and Rich and I are going to get into our analysis, but if you want to talk college football with us, give us a call, 844-84-FNTSY. That's 844-843-6879. You could follow me on Twitter, at go for the 2 The number two, you could follow Rich on, on Twitter, at Rich Sermonello. That's C-I-R-M-I-N-I-E-L-L-O. Rich, these 12 o'clock games, very interesting, renewed rivalries. One of them, Penn State and Pittsburgh, an intriguing matchup for intrastate recruiting. This is the type of game that you just say they want to fight it in a phone booth between James Franklin Mm -hmm. and Pat Narduzzi. 
Yeah, I, to me, it's a shame that it, we, it's taken so long to see this game. For for folks on the East Coast, they understand the hatred between Penn State and Pittsburgh. Penn State tends to dominate the state of Pennsylvania. They've gotten the best recruits. They get the most publicity. Their fans have been the loudest. But Pittsburgh has really begun to come on under Pat Narduzzi. Second season, very physical style of football. Today it's at Heinz Field, and I got to tell you, I I think that entire western half of Pennsylvania is thirsting at the prospect of taking it to Happy Valley. I, I mean, I think in terms of intensity, we've got two great games on the intensity meter. This is one, Joe. Later on in the day, BYU Utah Holy War. That's number two. I agree with you. Those are two just classic rivalries that that are one on the offense and defense lines. And you mentioned, I can't wait to see both of these matchups play out a little bit later today. And I will say this about Pittsburgh. I mean, you look at the heyday in the early 80s with Hugh Green and Dan Marino. You talk about some other guys in the, in the early 90s when you think about Pittsburgh football, Alex Van Pelt. Uh, Tom Tumulty, uh, Curtis Martin. I mean, the list goes on and on about the talent in Pittsburgh, and we'll see that game play out. Can Pittsburgh bring their A game against James Franklin and the Nittany Lions? Another intriguing game that I want to look at, and we'll get into it, is Cincinnati and Purdue and San Diego State and Cal. This is what it's all about. College football at its best. Stay with us. I want to... I also want to bring up one game last night. Maryland defeated Florida International. DJ Durkin and the crew moved to 2-0, 41-14. When we come back, Rich and I will be breaking down week number two. This is Joe Lisi and Rich Sermonello on the SB Nation Radio Network. You're listening to College Football Game Day on SB Nation Radio. Here are your hosts, Rich Sermonello and Joe Lisi. Back on College Football Game Day, Rich and I are going to start our analysis. We're going to start with that Penn State-Pittsburgh game. Rich, when I look at this game overall, the one MO when I look at Penn State last year under James Franklin is that they really did not have success on the road or on a neutral field site. One in five in those ball games. The only game that they won on the road was in Maryland, 31-30. to They dropped, they were one in five and dropped those five games by 18.6 points per game. That's going to put a lot of pressure on Trace McSorley to make plays in the passing attack. I'm not sold on Trace McSorley. I think he's an inconsistent quarterback. He only completed 51% last week, and I really think that the advantage does fall with Pat Narduzzi and the Pitt Panthers in this ballgame. Uh, couldn't agree more. I, I think you look at similar styles in these two programs, Joe. They're both going to be physical. They're both trying to win at the line of scrimmage, and they both want to run the ball. So, yeah, I, I, I don't have a lot of faith in McSorley. I do have a ton of faith in Saquon Barkley. I think he's one of the really good up-and-coming running backs in the country. He'll be competing for production versus James Conner. Uh, I don't know who wins that battle, but if you want to look at a, a more important under-the-radar matchup. It's McSorley versus Nathan Peterman. I know we'll talk about Tennessee throughout these couple of hours. Peterman began his career as a volunteer. He's a steady senior quarterback, doesn't have great targets, but I have more faith in him making plays on third and intermediate than I do uh, with McSorley. And then the other big advantage that really needs to be talked about is that Pittsburgh offensive line. You reference 
referenced in the last segment, the old days, the physical, the Bill Fralick-type Pitt Panthers. There are offensive linemen like Dorian Johnson, like Adam Biznawadi, that that kind of fall into that category. When I look at James Franklin overall, I was excited that he succeeded Bill O'Brien. A lot of people weren't sure if James Mm -hmm. Franklin was the type of guy. He's done a fantastic job in terms of recruiting, but here's the one thing when I look at his resume overall in terms of the rushing production since he got there. In 2012, as a team, Penn State rushed for 174 yards on the ground. In 2013, they dipped to 102 yards per game. Last season, at 130 34. Barkley got his yards last week against Kent State, but as a team, they only rushed for 145 yards on the ground. If they're supposed to make a run in the Big Ten, they need better offensive line play. That's been the MO over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Last year, they allowed 39 sacks as a unit. Two years ago, they allowed 44 sacks as a unit, one of the worst statistical offensive lines in the country over the last couple of years. So, again, the pressure's on James Franklin, and it falls on this offense to line. So is it a scheme uh, uh, game plan in terms of a scheme perspective that that why this offense isn't performing up to par over you know the way it did under Bill O'Brien or is it the talent? That's the question I want to ask. Yeah. I think it is a combination because I think Bill O'Brien is one of the best innovators uh, in the country uh, from an offensive perspective. Uh, He was having more success with Christian Hackenberg behind center than Franklin did over the past couple of seasons. Uh, Hackenberg now is no longer with Penn State, but the big problem has been offensive linemen, and and James Franklin has tried to backfill through the junior college ranks. It's it's worked on somewhat of a tepid level up to this point, but you know, I you talk about Franklin. I think that's one of the big storylines, Joe. I, this is a a really important year three for him in Happy Valley. My prediction is I, I don't think he's with this program next year. I, I, I've gotten the sense in talking folks close to the program that that they're not really thrilled with James Franklin. His sales pitch has has kind of begun to wear a little bit thin in that region of the country, and obviously they haven't had the results up to expectations. So. To Today's game, if he takes it on the chin, if they get hammered by Penn State, I think it furthers the theory that he might be on a different campus in 2017. The success that he had at Vanderbilt, you can't argue. I mean, to win in the deep, unbelievable. Two back-to-back goal wins, two nine-win seasons, and and sort of capped out at Vanderbilt because realistically, you're not going to win the SEC at Vanderbilt, and he got the most out of that ball club, and the one thing that I can say is that under his tutelage, his teams bought in. I mean, if they fell behind, they fought from the first quarter through the end, uh, the fourth quarter, through the final whistle. And now I see this team and, and they sort of played down to the competition. I mean, that Kent State team had 18 returning starters, 10 on offense and 8 on defense. They were solid up front, but at times, they really pushed around Penn State on the offense and defense lines. That game was 13 apiece at one point in the second quarter. And that's a major concern. If you're going to be a successful Penn State program, you have to have a blue-collar tinge to you. You have to be able to to succeed the way Wisconsin succeeds. You have to be able to succeed on some level the way Vandy did. I mean, when, when Franklin had success at Vanderbilt, very good defensive teams. I mean, they rarely were... Uh, 
explosive offensively, but defensively, particularly in the secondary, very good football teams. And, you know, I, I think James Franklin is a terrific head football coach. I think he'll coach for as long as he wants to. But sometimes we find, and we could think of many examples, where a coach and a program just don't fit. And, and that's why I think that I think there's a possibility that they part ways. And if that does happen, Joe, James Franklin is young. He's a tremendous recruiter, very good motivator. I think there will be schools lining up to scoop him up and sign him. I agree with that. The one thing that hasn't missed a beat is the defensive line in the front seven. Last week, seven sacks against Kent State. I thought there would be a little bit of a drop-off with Carl Nassib and Austin Johnson moving on to the NFL. Well, they stepped up last week with seven sacks. They held Kent State to 150 rushing yards per, uh, on the ground and 129 yards through the air. On the flip side, you mentioned Fitz. And Pat Narduzzi, to me, is a perfect fit for Pittsburgh because I felt when like Paul Chris was there, a great offensive mind, but again, a guy that just didn't fit the mold of Pittsburgh. I mean, that he had problems with the players when he got there. His first year, he had to suspend six guys. Russell Shell moved on to West Virginia, never got the sense that Paul Christ was the guy to lead Pittsburgh back to dominance. But now with Pat Narduzzi, a, a lunch pail type of guy, he's a defensive-minded head mm-hmm. coach, I feel this is a per- perfect fit for the Panthers uh, and, and this team to possibly make some noise in the ACC. Can they keep him? Yeah, that, that, that's the question. I mean, Pitt over the last five, six years has had a hard time keeping head coaches. Todd Graham being a good example of that. Uh, you know, Mike Hayward looked like he was going to be the coach, and then and then he got booted before he even coached a game. But that that's the question. Can Pittsburgh keep a Pat Narduzzi long-term? Because I couldn't agree with you more. It's a perfect fit of mindset and ability to coach up two- and three-star players. That's what Narduzzi did at Michigan State with Mark D'Antonio. They weren't getting the elite high school players, but when they were done – They were elite, next-level type players. That's what he has to be able to do at Pittsburgh. But can Pitt keep him? Because you know what? You're not winning national championships at Pittsburgh. You're not winning any ACC titles at Pittsburgh. At some point, if a Big Ten team that has a shot to win titles goes after Narduzzi, I, I think that could be an interesting play. Yeah, very interesting. We'll see how that game plays out. Nate Peterman will have to step up and make some plays. He completed 59% last week in the victory. Two touchdowns, no interceptions. And James Conner did add 53 yards and a touchdown. We're just touching the surface. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, former Virginia Tech quarterback Sean Glennon will give us his take on what the Hokies have to do tonight against the Volunteers. This is Joe Lisi and Rich Sermonella on the SB Nation Radio network you're listening to college football game day on sb nation radio here are your hosts rich sermonello and joe lisi Back on College Football Game Day, we are set for the battle at Bristol, Virginia Tech, and Tennessee, 8 p.m. tonight. What better way to break this game down with than with a former Hokie? He's live on the Progressive Celebrity Hotline. I want, I want to welcome in former Va Tech quarterback Sean Glennon. Sean, how are you today? Good, man. Good. Really excited for the game tonight. 150,000 fans on hand to watch this ACC-SEC battle. Sean, give me your take on what Virginia Tech has to do in this matchup to get the victory tonight over Tennessee. Well, 
there's a couple things they have to do offensively. Have to be able to run the ball better than they did last week against Liberty. Um, what we do have, what Tennessee knows we have, is playmakers at the wide receiver position. Isaiah Ford and Bucky Hodges have to create matchups that favor us and allow the box to get opened up for the running game because that's how Virginia Tech's going to control the clock and hopefully give themselves a chance to win this football game. If Tennessee makes them one-dimensional, I think it could prove difficult for first uh, quarterback Gerard Evans really playing in his first game on the national stage in his life. Um, it could put a lot of pressure on his shoulders. So I think that the running game has to get off to a good start, has to be able to run the ball in early downs uh, to set up you know, second and third in, in shorts. Uh, on the de- defensive side of the ball, I think they take – uh, a page right out of the playbook last week of Appalachian State. Appalachian State ran a lot of five-man fronts, five-down linemen, and really uh, disrupted Tennessee's vaunted running attack and put a lot of pressure on the quarterback, um, Dobbs, who I don't feel like throws the ball downfield very well. So I think Bud Foster will probably recognize that. And if it ain't uh, broke, don't fix it approach. Um, he ran a five-man front against Ohio State a couple of years ago when they pulled off that upset to make them more one-dimensional, to keep their quarterback contained and not be able to run the ball as well uh, when things break down. And I, I, I anticipate a similar approach uh, this evening. Hey, Sean, it's Rich Sermonello. Uh, you mentioned Gerard Evans, this being just his second game uh, at this level, junior college quarterback. Have you learned anything about his personality to get a read as to whether or not he'll be able to handle this moment? Well, what impressed me last week is, now I know we were playing Liberty, but things weren't going well early on. Uh, Tech was actually down in the second quarter to a Liberty team, but I never saw him panic. He was very composed, and I never saw him make a bad decision. Um, I'm not saying that every throw he made was right on the money um, or that every um, play was perfect, but what he never did was force any balls. What he never did was take a bad sack. Uh, He never – he didn't have any turnovers. So I I appreciate it and was um, encouraged by his composure. And I've heard a lot of the same from coming out of the coaches. that I, I, You know, you never see this guy get rattled. He's cool, cool as a cucumber. And obviously that is going to be humongous if he can maintain that demeanor for tonight's game because the biggest football game attendance-wise in the history of the sport uh, on a national stage with college game day there and uh, all the hoopla that's surrounding it. You know, this has been a game in the making for a very long time. Um, him being able to not get lost in the moment and calm, be a calming presence for the rest of the offense could be the most important factor, uh, intangible, an in, in, in intangible uh that Virginia Tech will have. Sean, you had the opportunity to play for legendary head coach Frank Beamer uh, during your days in Blacksburg, and now Justin Fuente, a young head coach that brought great success to Memphis. They got them off to their best start since 1961 last year. They knocked off Ole Miss at home. What does Coach Fuente bring in terms of his offensive philosophy that gives Virginia Tech an edge in this matchup? Because I agree with you. I think tight end Bucky Hodges – 
to me, is the X factor in this matchup. If they could utilize them on nickelbacks or linebackers in this game, I think Virginia Tech has a huge advantage because of his size. But elaborate on Coach Fuente for me. Well, for a long time, and this is no knock on, on Coach Beamer or the old offensive coaching staff, we were a little old school in our approach to offense. You know, we're probably one of the last teams that was lining up in two tight end sets or the I formation and, and really being committed to establishing the run um, under center. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, you know, probably a lot of young kids don't even know what it's like to be under center. And we were probably getting a little outdated, a little antiquated in our offensive approach. And I think that A.D. Whitbathcock, when he was making this hire, um, especially knowing that in the back of his mind he was going to be trying to, uh, to have the new head coach keep uh, defensive coordinator Bud Foster, really wanted to make this an offensive hire and try to bring some excitement um, and new school to the Virginia Tech offense that we haven't really had. And uh, as evidenced by his tenure at TCU and especially at Memphis, you know, that's what Coach Fuente brings to the table. So I'm really excited. I'm a little bit salty that I didn't get the opportunity to play in an offense like this because you see the <laughs> up-tempo, you see them spreading it out. You know, I had a lot of great receivers when I played there. And to be able to play in a system like this that really utilizes those strengths and allows you to get the hands and uh the ball in the hands of your playmakers allows a quarterback um, a lot of liberties and freedom and, and um, you know, throw the ball a lot, put up a lot of points. You know, that's exciting for any quarterback, and I think it'll bring some uh, balance. You know, we've got that old-school, gritty, blue-collar defense that Bud Foster employs, and now we've got the new-school, kind of sexy, high-flying offense that Coach Fuente uh, brings to the table. And I'm really excited as these players, um, you know, catch hold of the uh, – the, the systems and the, and the um, systems in place that Coach Fuente brings to the table, how that's going to go hand-in-hand hand with each other. Hey, Sean, uh, from a macro standpoint, uh, moving just away from the specifics of this matchup, I'm always intrigued by how teams tend to elevate from week one to week two in college football, oftentimes playing a soft opponent, maybe not opening up the entire, you know, maybe the playbook's a little bit vanilla in week one. Just from your experience as a player, what have you seen in terms of the growth from week one to week two when it comes to college players? You know, it's always one of the most interesting weeks for me as a college football fan um, because week one, you know, and I remember as a player, a lot of times how we performed at week one was not indicative of the rest of the season, be it good or bad. Uh, There's just so many unknowns when you come into that first game and a lot of jitters. And a lot of times, unless you're playing in a marquee matchup, both sides are kind of keeping their cards close to their chest, trying not to show maybe some new wrinkles. Uh, some new blitz packages, some new offensive, uh, you know, formations or looks that they have, you know, up their sleeve because they don't want that next big opponent um, to have film on it and be able to prepare for it. And I think Tech and Tennessee fall into that category perfectly. I mean, they both had games where, and I know Tennessee, you know, really should have lost their first game, but they both had games that weren't marquee matchups. They're against. Uh, you know, small Division One schools or FBS schools, and I'm I'm guaranteeing that a lot of their wrinkles that they worked on in the off season that they didn't show that hand. They didn't want Bud Foster to be able to prepare for it. They didn't want that Tennessee coaching staff to be able to prepare for it. And so 
it'll be very interesting to see the identity that each team tries to come out with in this game that we probably never saw in week one. Sean, great information. I mean, we'd love to have you on as the season progresses. I mean, your insight as a quarterback, a big play quarterback in the ACC, second to none. We hope you enjoyed it today. I did. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. We'd love to come back on as the season progresses and uh, go Hokies tonight. That was former Virginia Tech quarterback Sean Glennon giving his breakdown about what the Hokies have to do. Rich, it's incredible. I mean, it's really going to be come down to can Virginia Tech put the pressure on Josh Dobbs in that offense to respond? Yeah, and I like their chances. You know, Sean touched on Bud Foster. That was a great uh, hire. It was already on staff, but that was a great retention from Justin Fuente because Bud Foster knows the personnel. He knows how to attack defenses. He recognizes that Tennessee struggled along the offensive line last week against App State. Hold that thought, Rich. We'll come back. We'll get your thoughts about that. This is Joe Lisi and Rich Sermonello on the SB Nation radio network. You're listening to College Football Game Day on SB Nation Radio. Here are your hosts, Rich Sermonello and Joe Lisi. Back on College Football Game Day, great interview with former Virginia Tech quarterback Sean Glennon. He got his thoughts. He's a little bit jealous that he's not playing in this system with Justin Fuente. Rich, you were telling me about your thoughts, about what you thought Sean Glennon brought to the table in terms of his breakdown of the game. Yeah, I, I thought it was. I thought it was a great interview. I did love his uh, his candor about the fact that he feels uh, slighted somewhat back in the day. Virginia Tech was very vanilla, not any longer. And and you and I, Joe, I think are on the same page when it comes to Justin Fuente. Love his coaching acumen. Love what he does with quarterbacks. I'm just curious tonight because I haven't watched Gerard Evans. He was at Trinity Valley uh, Junior College last year. I don't know what he brings to the offense and whether or not he can. Maximize the potential of the Isaiah Fords, the Bucky Hodges, uh, the Trevon uh, McMillan in the backfield. So that, to me, is the key matchup for Virginia Tech. I think they'll do well defensively with Bud Foster and his active front seven. But can the offense, for all the talk about Tennessee, Joe, Defense still pretty solid. Defense still played uh, very well last week. It is. And the one thing when you look at Virginia Tech last year, the one MO, they were solid in pass coverage last year, even though Kendall Fuller went down with an injury midway through the year. They only gave up about 189 passing yards per game. The one MO that they had last year, their Achilles heels, that they couldn't shut down the run effectively. They gave up 180 rushing yards on the ground. Even though they had guys like Dottie Nicholas and Luther Matty, they were athletic defensive tackles but they weren't run stuffers that actually clog running lanes. So I'm curious to see what Bud Foster does this year against a very physical offensive line in Tennessee tonight. And we'll see if Jalen Hurd gets gets his yards because if they could shut down Jalen Hurd in that rushing attack now, Tennessee only had 127 rushing yards last week in the win against App State and put the pressure on Josh Dobbs. That falls right into the strength of that secondary and Vatek might have a leg up. Yeah, and you bring up a good point about the front seven of Virginia Tech. Very active, very quick off the snap, but not very big. You look at someone like Woody Barron. He's a, he's a player I like. He's, he's someone who can uh, bust the gaps, make plays behind the line of scrimmage, but 
just a shade over 280 pounds, and that might not match up very well against that physical offensive line against Tennessee, which will be under the spotlight tonight in Bristol because they performed very poorly in Week 1. A couple of notes before we move on to the next game. Greg Ward Jr. out against Lamar. He's got a shoulder injury. He's not going to play today, nor will Notre Dame wide receiver Torrey Hunter, who's going through concussion protocol. He's out against Nevada later today. Today. Will that affect the Irish? I don't think so. I think they'll roll later today. They're 27-point favorites over Nevada a little bit later, around 3.30. Rich, there's an intriguing game. It's, it's an AAC Big Ten battle. It's Cincinnati and Tommy Tuberville on the road in West Lafayette playing Daryl Hazel and Purdue. This game intrigues me because I, I'm very high on Purdue in terms of I think they're going to be a, a sleeper in the Big Ten. Not their challenge for the conference title, but I think this team could be bowl eligible, and I like what Daryl Hazel has there in the big three, David Blau, Markel Jones, and D'Angelo Yancey. I look at Purdue as South Florida was last year under Willie Taggart. They allowed him to get his recruits and his guys there, and I think they're going to have a breakthrough season in 2015. You're bullish on Purdue. <laughs> Very bullish on Purdue. I just learned that about you. Very uh, that's bullish. good. I like that. Daryl Hazel, he, he needs it. And I, I think this is one of those games. You know, I, I like talking about coaches. I like talking about the futures of coaches. Daryl Hazel was one of those coaches that at Kent State really had become a hot commodity in the MAC. He, he, he came from uh, the Ohio State coaching tree, had a really good pedigree uh, back under Jim Tressel. He gets his opportunity at Purdue. And, you know, what we have seen is the fact that Joe Tiller did a really good job at West Lafayette because I can't think of many coaches that could be successful at Purdue. Daryl Hazel has an opportunity now against a good quality Cincinnati team trying to make its way into the Big 12. I think he has to win today, Joe, because at the end of the day, if he's not bowl eligible, I don't think he gets an opportunity for a fifth season uh, with the Boilermakers. I could see that. And in South Florida was on the cusp with Willie Taggart last year. I mean, in 2004, 14, they were they were playing much better, and then they had that breakthrough season with Quinton Flowers and Marlon Mack last year, and now they're one of the strengths of their conference. When I look at Purdue overall, I look at their games last year, played Bowling Green, very tough. They lost that game by seven points. They played Michigan State, very tough. They lost that ball game by three points. So they were close, and they dominated Nebraska at home. They won that ball game in convincing fashion. I mean, they really put it to the Cornhuskers in West Lafayette. So I think they have the tools in place. And the one thing I look at in this team is I like when you have the big three. I like when you have the offensive scheme and you have your quarterback and you have your running back and a big physical offensive line that can pound the football between the tackles when you have to. I think this team is something to keep an eye out for. And you know what? A couple of things. Number one, I I love, again, people will knock week two schedule because we don't have Alabama USC, but I love the fact that we can come on the air this morning and folks across the country can hear us talking about Purdue. I think that's really a plus, not just for us, but anyone in the audience that's listening to this show. Number two, young teams have to learn how to win. That's the point we're at with Purdue. They have a lot of experience. I like the kid in the backfield, Markel Jones, the running back, but can they learn how to win those close 
games turn a moral victory into an actual victory. That's something we'll have to watch for today. It, we will. And one thing I could tell you about Cincinnati and Tommy Tuberville overall, the defensive side of the ball has gone down considerably, especially in run support. They allowed 192 rushing yards per game last year. That team under Tommy Tuberville last year, they were minus 19 in turnover margin. That was one of the worst statistical turnover margins in the country. So that's something to keep an eye out for in this game in West Lafayette. Rich and I will give our predictions a little bit later in the show. When we come back, we'll still be breaking down week number two. This is Joe Lisi and Rich Sermonello on the SB Nation radio network. Stay with us. We're taking a quick break. This is SB Nation Radio. The next generation of sports radio. Kelly's going to run right. He hits the goal line. Does he break the plane? He does! Touchdown! Oh, Miss! This is College Football Game Day. Peppers is in the shotgun. He takes the snap. He runs to the left. It's a sweep. He's to the four, to the He's three. In. He's in. Touchdown, Michigan! Here are your hosts, Rich Sermonello and Joe Lisi. on College Football Game Day. Rich and I talked about some of the early games at 12 o'clock. We're going to continue in our coverage, but if you want to talk college football with us, give us a call 844-843-6879. That's 844-84-FNTSY. If you want to talk college football with us, follow me on Twitter at GoForThe2. That's the number two. If you want to talk to Rich, follow him on Twitter at Rich Sermonello. That's C-I-R-M-I-N-I-E-L L-O. Rich and I were talking about Cincinnati and Purdue. I'm bullish on this Boilermaker team, and I really think that they're going to make some noise. They're not going to win the Big Ten, but they will be, in my opinion, bowl eligible. So keep an eye out for David Blau, Markel Jones, and D'Angelo Yancey a little bit later today, and as they make their way through the Big Ten season. We'll turn our attention to another classic game. It's a little bit later tonight, but it's an intriguing battle. Pac-12 Mountain West, Washington Washington State and Boise State, Rich. I mean, this is an intriguing battle. You got Luke Falk and Brett Rippon, two solid quarterbacks, and this is a must-win game for the Cougars. We'll wait for Rich to come back. He, he's not with us right now, but we'll talk about Washington State right now. They lost their ball game 45-42 to last week to Eastern Washington. Got off to a slow start last year as well against Portland State. This is a team that started slow under Mike Leach in recent years, but they look to turn the tables tonight on the blue field in Boise. I think there's an upset brewing here. What do you think, Rich? Can you hear me now, Joe? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, no, I, I, was, I was someone who really thought highly of Washington State heading into this season. I thought that, you know, Washington was getting a lot of attention. Uh, Wazoo was maybe getting not enough attention heading into 2016. So big surprise last week that they played as poorly as they did, particularly defensively. Alex Grinch came in as a coordinator last year, really turned them into an aggressive, opportunistic type of a defense, but they played really poorly last week against East. Eastern Washington in a surprising loss, and yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think it sets up well for that defense against Boise State. You mentioned Brett Rippon, uh, Thomas Spurbeck, their talented wide receiver. Uh, you got Jeremy McNichols in the backfield at Boise State. It is must win. You don't want to start 0-2, but defensively, lots of concerns with Washington State. I think there will be a lot of points, 
but I really favor that Boise State defense. See, I'm, I'm not in this mindset that Boise State is this elite team. I know they had a successful year last year, but if you look at the games that they lost, they got worn down by big, physical, blue-collar offense and defensive lines. I know Washington State is not really built that way, but they bring their defensive physicality. I mean, they force teams at times to methodically work down the field. They did it last year against Stanford and against, uh, against Miami in the Sun Bowl. That's a, another key example you could use. But I think this team is just a team that matches up very well against Boise State. Again, they match up on the, on the perimeter, on the outside with wide receiver Gabe Marks, and their running backs. I like the way they're running the football, Rich. They rushed for 97 yards uh, last week in the loss. But here's the thing about Washington State when you look at their rushing, rushing production. Over the last few years prior to 2015, they were in the area of about 40 rushing yards per game under Mike Leach. Last year, they got it up to around 80. The extra 40 yards allows this team, when they have a lead, to bleed the clock and take time off the clock where in years past they couldn't run the football consistently and and play with a lead. That's the difference from last year to this year, and I think that they can win this ball game on the road because of their rushing offense with Gerard Wicks and Morrow, their running backs. I, I listen. I, I don't think they they win, Joe. I, I respect your opinion. I, I don't think they win. I don't think they cover. I, I I think the problem is, and listen, one one positive for Washington State is their free safety, talented free safety, Shalom Luani, suspended in week one. He'll be back. I think he does help the secondary. But I really was surprised with the ease with which Eastern Washington threw the ball last week. The balance of the Boise State offense is going to cause a lot of problems for Washington State. Plus, Boise State, and I, 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 you don't think they're an elite team. I think they're an elite group of five team. I always like the way they play defense, and I know they have a lot of new starters this year, but defensively, such a solid program. I, I think this is a one-sided game. Luke Falk will get his yards, but he's going to throw two or three picks. I, I think I think Boise State wins comfortably. Well, this this is what makes uh, mismatches and matchups because we're going to see how this game plays out. I mean, one thing I can tell you about Washington State's defense, they need to get better on third down in terms of third down conversions. They allowed Eastern Washington to convert six of 11 third down attempts. If they put, put that type of performance against Boise State today, they're not going to win the ball game later tonight. But I, I really like this offense overall, and I like Mike Leach as a coach. Uh, I understand that yeah. sometimes, you know, he comes out of the gate slow. It's sort of his M.O., not sure why, but he'll fix it. I mean, if this is going to be a team that's going to compete for the Pac-12 title, like I was high on them, I think they still have an opportunity to be yeah. the, the team of the Pac-12. He'll right in the ship in week number two, and I expect a, a great effort today. But that's what makes these games so special. We have varying opinions, and this is what makes college football. And I, I love that you mentioned Mike Leach writing the ship because he is a noted fan of Pirates. I don't know if you meant to throw that reference in there, but it was not lost on me. I just want to let you know that. Right. And, and you know, he has a law degree, one of a few uh, lawyers in college football and a smart man. And the mad scientist, that's the one thing you, you know about Mike yeah. Leach. I mean, well, from his days in and, Lubbock. And, and, and Sean... Sean brought it up, too. I, I think what we saw in week one, we kind of get married to the results in week one. But the reality is there's a lot of rust. There's a lot of jitters. There's a lot of coaching staffs that won't, don't want to completely open up their playbook. And that's why I find week two so fascinating. I think it gives a better 
example of what we could expect to see from these teams going forward. Yeah, that's a great point because either you're going to see the teams make adjustments or you're going to see the trend continue, meaning if you had a poor performance yeah. in week one and it follows through in week two, well, then maybe you have to reevaluate the way the team is playing and what you think about this team going forward because they might not be as good as you thought entering the 2016 season. We'll turn our attention to exactly. another great battle in Fort Worth. I mean, this is, goes back to the days of the Southwest Conference, Arkansas and TCU. TCU ranked 15th overall. Brett Bielma, uh, he, this is a, a common uh, situation for him. Can his Razorbacks make some noise on the road against Gary Patterson and TCU later tonight? Yeah, let, let's keep that theme of week one versus week two. This is such a pivotal game for both Arkansas and TCU, both of whom entered the season with a lot of expectations. But Arkansas barely escapes Louisiana Tech. TCU has all kinds of problems with South Dakota State. So now both of these schools are hoping to settle down, show us a better example of what they're going to be going forward in 2016. Arkansas had problems on the offensive line, which is uncharacteristic for a Brett Bielema team. And then Gary Patterson's Horned Frogs, they had problems defensively, major problems defensively, which was also uncharacteristic. So I can't wait to see this game just to kind of get an idea like will the real Arkansas and TCU please stand up yeah you're talking about days of Quinn Grovey right and Billy Ray Smith and then TCU Kenneth Davis I mean incredible uh, days back in the Southwest Conference years ago I'm showing my age there but I think when you look at this matchup for yes, Arkansas I, I was gonna say you're, you're outing both of us <laughs> exactly at this point, we're Joe, two old men, I remember those players also two old men <laughs> talking college football doesn't get better than this right but but when I look at Arkansas, I love it. I love it. when I look at Arkansas's offensive issues uh, last week against Louisiana Tech, you mentioned the offensive line inexperience. They plug in three of five new offensive starters, but they lose Alex Collins, they lose running back Jonathan Williams, so they're not playing with that same type of physicality. At least in Week One, where they pound the football consistently between the tackles, they only had 106 rushing yards on the ground last week. If they can't run the football up around 170, yeah. 180, then Austin Allen can't attack that defense off of play action. That's what Dan Enos loved to do last year with Brandon Allen, but it's all predicated off of the rushing attack. So if this running game does not get going tonight, then they're not going to have success against the Horn Frogs a little bit later. Yeah, and listen, they're going to be facing a very good defensive line, Joe. Uh, Josh Carraway and James McFarlane off the edge, Aaron Curry on the inside. If you want to be optimistic about Arkansas, this is a smallish defense. Gary Patterson had to go with smaller linebackers to compete with the spread offenses of the Big 12. So the physicality of that Arkansas offensive line could potentially cause problems for the TCU front seven. Yeah, you look at TCU, they'll be starting former Texas A&M quarterback Kenny Hill. They put up 59 points last week and 662 total yards in their victory at home. 439 through the air and 223 on the ground. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, Aaron Hayden. This is Joe Lisi and Rich Sermonello on the SB Nation Radio Network. You're listening to College Football Game Day on SB Nation Radio. Here are your hosts, Rich Sermonello and Joe Lisi. 
Back on College Football Game Day, we continue our coverage of the battle at Bristol, 8 p.m. tonight. 150,000 fans, Virginia Tech and Tennessee doesn't get better than this. What better way to talk Tennessee football than with a former volunteer? He's live on the Progressive Celebrity Hotline. I want to welcome in former Vol running back Aaron Hayden. Aaron, how are you today? I'm doing good. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. When you look at this matchup, last week against Appalachian State, Aaron, is this an aberration, or will Butch Jones and the crew rebound with an emotional effort later tonight? I, I think it's going to take emotion. I think, uh, I think I thought a little bit that the hype might have got to the team a little bit last week. I, I thought uh, some of the, the, the better players played a little tight, so I'm hoping that they come out and just uh, play with emotion and quit worrying about the uh, expectations everybody's put on the team for this year and just play play by play and and game by game and and just see where they stand at the end of the year. Aaron, Rich Cervanello, what stood out for me uh, last Thursday was the play of the Tennessee offensive line. Uh, Didn't meet expectations uh, to kind of play off of what Joe said. Aberration for the O-line or can we expect some changes this week? Um, I, I would say, and this is something that I said on, on a couple of shows earlier in the year, uh, I do think Tennessee is, is back and ready at the skill positions, uh, defensive front, secondary. But I do think the line is still a, a work in progress. And I think they're going to have to make some changes up front and play with a few things and get a line that can gel together because uh, the size of Appalachian State's defensive line is, is not even close to the defensive lines they'll face you know, in Florida and, and Alabama and Georgia. So if we can't control those guys up front, um, we're going to have to do something different different because I think that's going to depend how far we go is what we can do up front. Uh, I think, you know, Jalen Hurd wasn't really a factor. Um, Dobbs was really not a factor. We really couldn't get Kamara going. So we're going to have to do – that's the one position I think that we're still a work in progress. And I, I would say that I would think they would have to make some changes just to see – um, you know, who can play and, and, and what group plays well together. Because, you know, if you can't run the football, you're not going to be a top-tier team in the, in the SEC, let alone the nation. You mentioned running the football. They only rushed for 127 yards on the ground. You mentioned Jalen Hurd. I want to get your take, Aaron, because you were a, a dynamic running back in Knoxville from 1991 through 1994. Uh, the miracle at South Bend, your screen pass that uh, gave the Volunteers the go-ahead victory. How would you rate Jalen Hurd overall in the long line of Tennessee running backs that we've seen over the years? I mean, he's a d- dynamic playmaker, but I want to get your take on his ability and more importantly, what he brings to this offense? Well, I think one thing he brings to the offense, he's a physical guy, and you have to load a box up. You're not going to play six in the box and uh, stop Jalen Hurd because one guy is not going to bring him down. So I, I think he, he is the key to the offense going because if you can load the box and keep those linebackers in the box, then, of course, you have the read option. You have it open up pass, you know, the passing game and uh, different things that you can do with Kamara, you know, bringing him in. So I think he is the foundation, you know, of that offense. I would personally like to see them get him going downhill a little more like they did against Iowa in the, in the bowl game. As far as where he ranks, as far as uh, his history at, at Tennessee, I think that's, you know, that's up to the, the, the different generations. I would say that he's he's probably the first back in a long time that I would put on, on you know, the uh, top echelon of running backs that have been at Tennessee. Uh, where he where he ends up at the end, you know, I don't know because I think we've been 
waiting for a running back, you know, so long for the for these uh, last, you know, five, six years. And uh, he'll probably end up, you know, leaving as the all-time leading rusher just because he's played, you know, four years and, and really has uh, produced for four years. So, you know, I don't know where I – to be honest, I guess I'm kind of dancing around that question, to be honest, because I really don't know where he, where he stands because um, there's been some very good running backs uh, at the University of Tennessee. And, uh, you know, I, you know I, I would have a hard time just – you know, putting him, putting him anywhere specific, but I do think he's in that top of you know the upper echelon of running backs. But you know, I'm a guy that follows Tennessee runners for a long time, and you know Johnny Jones and Reggie Cobb and Chuck Webb and Charlie Runner and James Lowman Stewart. So um, you're you're gonna have to do something special to get into that echelon. But I do think he is in the top tier. Aaron, you have a good finger on the pulse of Tennessee football. What's the climate surrounding Butch Jones? I mean, what do the locals think uh, through his first few seasons in Knoxville? I, I think people are. I think here's what I think is is for everybody that should say about Butch Jones. At least this is from my opinion and from what I hear from just talking to people in in, in the in the community. Butch has us. I think further along than we probably thought people that really understand football and understand how um, low the program had fallen. I think we appreciate the fact that he has us on a, a, uh, a faster curve, you know, back to success and actually have us relevant again. Um, I think from the X's old standpoint, I think the verdict is still out to, you know, we know he can recruit. We know he can market the program. But uh, when it comes down to simple X's and O's, can he get it done? And I think that's what we're all still uh, waiting to see. And I'm not saying that he can't. I just think he's going to have to prove to us that he's more than just branding the program because at the end of the day, that's really what we've done. We've kept the program very relevant in the off season as far as recruiting and, and all the marketing things we do. But we hadn't really done it when it came time to, to play in between the hashes. So – that's why I think I just think everybody's kind of the verdict still out. I think um, we really want to see something uh, against App State, and I would say it's the same thing this week. So um, I I think we I think they can do it. Like I said, I think it all starts up front, but I do think people are waiting to see you know what kind of coach Butch Butch is from from a uh, adjustment standpoint and uh, game planning and scheme and things like that. So. Aaron, when you talk about Tennessee and a lot of prognosticators and experts pick this team to win the SEC East and be the team to beat out of the conference and actually challenge Alabama, I want to get your take on the defensive side of the ball. Do you feel, even though they have eight starters returning from the 2015 season, in your opinion, is this a dominant defense or is this just an experienced defense that hopes to get better throughout the season? I think it's a combination of both. I think it's a very talented defense, a very experienced defense. I would say you have to give a coordinator time to get his guys gelling and what group they have about, I would say, what, 17, 18 guys that they could play in a rotation on that defense. In the secondary up front, they have numerous guys that they can put at different positions. So I would just say, I would say the Berg is still out on shoot, too, because I think, uh, I think he, we all know he's a, a very good defense coordinator, but I think it's still a, a point of gelling. And I, I'm a little less concerned about the defense than I am the offensive line. So um, when you, you mentioned Alabama, I just looked at how dominant Alabama is, and they can play, you know, 22 kids 
and uh, they never have a drop off. I, you know, I don't know that we're ready to contend with Alabama. That's just me being honest. But I do think we're at the point where we can compete in the SEC East. I, I really do. Aaron, great information. You're one of my favorite running backs in volunteer history. Number 24, nothing better. We hope to have you on again a little bit later in the show, uh, in the year on the show as Tennessee progresses through the SEC. We hope you enjoyed it today. Oh, I did, and, and, and any time, man. And I appreciate you uh, mentioning me as one of your favorite running backs because I'm kind of old now. So uh, I really appreciate that. But anytime <laughs> you guys want to have me on, uh, just call me up, man. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, Rich and I will be giving our predictions. This is Joe Lisi and Rich Sermonello on the SB Nation Radio Network. You're listening to College Football Game Day on SB Nation Radio. Here are your hosts, Rich Sermonello and Joe Lisi. Back on College Football Game Day, the best part of the show, it's the prediction segment because, let's be honest, the only thing you care about is what Rich and I like later today. You want to knock us or you want to talk college football, always hit us up on Twitter. Any game that we don't cover today, you can hit us up at Go for the Two. That's the number two. You could hit Rich up at Rich Sermonello. That's C-I-R-M-I-N-I-E-L-L-O. If you want our opinion about a certain game, tweet us. We'll get back to you. Rich, we talked about Penn State and Pittsburgh. I want to get right into it. It's a 12 o'clock start. It's a a, a very intriguing game. Interstate recruiting. I like Pittsburgh in this matchup. They're a slight favorite. They're in the area of about three to four points now, but I think the offensive line wears down the defensive front seven, and I'm not sold on McSorley at the quarterback position. I think Pittsburgh gets a double-digit victory today in Heinz Field. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a coming out party for those around the country that haven't paid attention to what Pat Narduzzi is doing. I think you'll see a very aggressive defense. You mentioned the offensive line. I think they'll run the ball uh, mostly with James Conner. I don't think it'll be a sexy game. I think it'll be as blue collar as we expect. I think Pitt wins, Pitt covers, neither team reaches 30. Now, that, that it'll probably be the highest scoring game of the afternoon because it just shapes up like that MO, right? Like two lunch pail type of teams that they're, you know, it's going to be three yards in a cloud of dust. We'll see McSorley throw for 500 yards and Peterman have a career year uh, in one game uh, today. But no, I agree with you. I think defensive fronts will take front and center stage. And the one thing I like is that I feel like Pittsburgh has more offensive balance than Penn State does. Again, uh, inconsistent last week, McSorley was. He only completed 51% of his passes in the victory. And I saw some, some matchups against Kent State that I didn't like and I didn't like the wide receivers of Godwin and Hamilton, how they got involved in that offense. I don't think the offensive staff did a good job last week. Yeah, and I think it's a matter of want to in this type of a game. I mean, it matters to Penn State, obviously matters to James Franklin, but it really, really matters to Pittsburgh. And I think you'll see that in the intensity of the Panthers this afternoon. Yeah, we'll see how. That's a 12 o'clock start. Pittsburgh is three and a half or four point favorites at Heinz Field. We'll move on. We talked about Cincinnati and Tommy Tuberville taking on Daryl Hazel and Purdue. I like the upset here. It's a four point game, Cincinnati. Four, four and a half point favorites on the road in West Lafayette. But I think Purdue has something to prove here. They are a Big Ten team, and I expect them to shine through in a big way. I think it's a close game, but in the area of about a 37 or a 34 to 30 victory by the Boilermakers, they move to 2-0 on the year. 
Joe, I think you're sipping a few too many Boilermakers. <laughs> okay. I'm going to throw that out there at this point. You're a little pro, uh, a little too much pro Purdue at this particular stage. I, I like Cincinnati. I like the combination of Hayden Moore and, and the backfield combination of Mike Boone and Teon Green. A little more balance from Cincinnati. A little more big game uh, victory experience uh, from Tommy Tuberville. So I'm going to take Cincinnati in a shootout. High scoring, entertaining game, but I think the Bearcats survive on the road. Interesting. We're on opposite sides. I'm, I'm telling you, after today, Rich, you're going to be saying, Purdue, look out for them in the Big Ten because I think they break through in a big way. Let's talk about this. I, I would be happy for that program, and I would. I would be happy for Daryl Hazel, who has laid the foundation. I'd be happy for that Purdue program, uh, but obviously they got to prove it. Yeah, they have a bye week after this game against Cincinnati. Then they face Nevada. They face Maryland and Illinois. So if they can get through this game, it's possible that they could be 5-0 and by the end of September early October. We'll see how it plays out for that team a little bit later in the month. We'll talk about TCU and Arkansas again. I think this game comes down to the secondaries. Again, Gary Patterson at home. He's got Kenny Hill. They have a prolific offense that likes to stretch defenses vertically, and I'm not sold on this offense overall by Arkansas, even though they have Austin Allen. I like Gary Patterson and the Horn Frogs at home. Fort Worth is not an easy place to play. I think uh, TCU gets a double-digit victory in the area of about 17 points over Arkansas. Wow, uh, blowout. Yeah, I, I have a 31-21 TCU. This is what it comes down uh, for me, Joe. I, Gary Patterson is such a defensive whiz, and, and, and defense is his calling card. I, I think after the entire week of having to hear their coach berate them during practice after playing so poorly against South Dakota State, I think you're going to see a very inspired, aggressive TCU defensive team. And, and if the Horn Frogs get a lead and forced Arkansas to have to throw a little bit more than they're usually accustomed, it could become a blowout. I say by 10 TCU at home, we'll get a better indication of what the Horn Frogs could be in 2016. I agree with you because if they force Austin Allen out of his comfort zone, again, that offense is predicated solely on running the football consistently and working off a of play action and utilizing their tight end. If they can't run the football against that front seven, especially on the road, they're going to have a long day and the offense line. Again, three new starters on that offensive line. No Jonathan Williams, no Alex Collins. That's a big loss for that uh, Arkansas team. So you're right about that. Yeah, they played very poorly last week against a weaker opponent, Joe. Real quick, they, they allowed four sacks against Louisiana Tech. Big problem heading into a game with TCU. Here's a game we haven't talked about, but it's a contrast in styles. California and San Diego State. Cal dominated Hawaii on August 26th, 51-31. Davis Webb broke out with a four-touchdown performance. This is an underrated Mountain West team in terms of San Diego State. This is a team last year that led FBS in turnover margin with a plus 22. They have one of the most underrated running backs in college football in Donnell Pumphrey that rushed for over 1,600 yards and had 16 rushing touchdowns on the year. This is a Pac-12 Mountain West matchup. But here's the intriguing thing that I look at when I look at this battle. 
this is a blue-collar team in San Diego State, Rich, and Rocky Long from his days at New Mexico, he predicated physicality. I mean, they weren't the best of teams, but his teams brought it each and every Saturday, and the one thing I could tell you is that they love to run the football between the tackles, and I think that's the matchup right there. You look at California in their week one victory against Hawaii. They allowed 248 rushing yards on the ground, coupled with the fact that they haven't played a game in two weeks, and a lot of people feel that in the early part of the year, a bye week is beneficial. I think it disrupts timing of a timing offense led by Davis Webb, and I think San Diego State's a six and a half, seven point favorite. I think they dominate this matchup later today against Sonny Dykes and the Bears. Yeah, one of the downsides of Houston getting so much publicity, Joe, at this stage of the season with the win over Oklahoma in week one is the fact that we're now going to kind of turn a deaf ear to those other group of five teams that could potentially have a shot to play for a New Year's Six Bowl game. That team for me is San Diego State. And I like what you said about Rocky Long. You think West Coast football, you think San Diego, of course it has to be wide open, you know, no defense. And the absolute opposite is true. They have some very talented defensive players players, Alex Barrett, uh, Calvin Munson, their linebacker, Demonte Kazee, their cornerback, is going to play in the NFL and possibly be a high NFL draft choice. So for San Diego State, they have one prove-it opportunity in a non-conference game against Cal of the Pac-12. I think they're going to put their best foot forward. I think they're going to play very well tonight. Cal has no sure things on defense. I agree with you. I think it could be a lopsided game. And you look at Cal overall entering this matchup or entering this year. They lost their top six leading wide receivers and and they broke out in a big way against Hawaii but Hawaii is a finesse offense and defense under Nick Rolovich. They don't have the mentality that San Diego State has. So I agree with that. I think San Diego State wins this game by double digits. We'll quickly look at this game. Florida and Kentucky. Kentucky last week with a 35-10 second half lead that let slip to Southern Miss. Southern Miss pulled out the upset 44-35. Florida's won 29 straight games against Kentucky. The last 10 games have been decided by 26 points per game. Last two a lot closer Five and a half points per game. And two years ago in the swamp, Florida got a double overtime 36 to 30 victory over Mark Stoops in the Kentucky Wildcats. So this is a game that Rich and I are going to give our prognostication in next segment. But I want to talk about uh, Kentucky right here. Kentucky last week allowed 262 rushing yards to Southern Miss and running back Edo Smith. The second half collapse, unbelievable by Mark Stoops. This was a team that was supposed to make a bowl game. Not so early part of this season so far. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. This is Joe Lisi and Rich Sermonello on SB Nation Radio Network. You're listening to College Football Game Day on SB Nation Radio. Here are your hosts, Rich Sermonello and Joe Lisi. Back on College Football Game Day, last segment of the show, we left off with Kentucky and Florida. Florida's won 29 straight. I think this is a bad matchup for Kentucky, even though it's an SEC game. I don't see the Wildcats bouncing back emotionally. I think the Gators dominate by four touchdowns later today, Rich. Wow, where are those touchdowns going to come from? I, I like this offense. I think they can wear down the front seven of uh, Kentucky in this battle. I look for Brandon Powell and Antonio Callaway to break out as well. And I like Scarlett at the running back position. Look for Luke Del Rio. He has a big day today. I think he throws for over 400 yards. Hmm. 
Okay. Wow. Oh, my God. You're really shocking me there. Okay. I, I have Florida winning 28-13. I would actually take the points in this game. I, I don't like the matchup of uh, the Florida defense against the Kentucky offense. Obviously, Florida's got one of the dominant defenses uh, in the country. Their top corner, Tease Tabor, suspended in week one. He'll be back uh, this week to match up with Garrett Johnson. I just think that Kentucky's putting everything into this game. Mark Stoops has to perform well. He's in danger of going 0-2, in danger of losing his job at the end of the season. So I think you'll see an inspired Kentucky hang around for a while, uh, get a cover, but I I can't see Florida even getting it to the 30s at this point with that offense. Wow, we're going head-to-head. That's what makes this show so great because we have different contrasting styles and opinions of each game that we broke down. We'll keep in uh, the Pac-12 here. We'll talk Wash State, Boise State. I'm going with Wash State, and I think they strike the upset outright. They're 11-point underdogs on the road in Boise. I think Luke Falk and Mike Mike Leach bounce back in a huge way, and they get a high-scoring 45-40 to victory over the Broncos on the blue field. See, here we go again, Joe. You're a little country. I'm a little bit of rock and roll. I, 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 I think this is, I think this is Boise State in a double-digit win. I just think they're a more complete, more balanced program offensively, defensively. Jeremy, uh, Jeremy McNichols, I think, has a, a big game on the ground to, to complement Brett Rip, and I have it 41-28. Boise State, the old Pirates going to be 0-2 after this weekend. Wow, we'll see that. We haven't talked about the Holy War, but it's a huge battle. BYU and Utah, as long as Taysom Hill's on the sidelines for the Cougars and playing in this ball game, I like what he has to offer. Even though Utah's won the last three games by 5.6 points per game, they won last year's Las Vegas Bowl 35-28, to but I like the Cougars in this matchup, and I like the way they played against Arizona on the defensive side of the ball BYU in a slight upset tonight in Salt Lake City see now our our listeners are going to think we're staging this just to be (laughs) contrarians because I don't see it at all Utah has dominated BYU over the better part of this decade I just think they're the more physical team offensively defensively I have questions about the Utah offense sure Troy Williams Joe Williams don't know what exactly to expect from that backfield but I love the offensive line love the defensive line led by Lowell Latulale so I, I think they're the more physical team. Yeah, Taysom Hill's back. Jamal Williams is back. But I think Utah... 24 to 20 might not even be that close, but I think they win at home. Interesting. The battle at Bristol, Va Tech, and Tennessee. I really like Virginia Tech. I like Bucky Hodges. I like Justin Fuente for what he can bring in terms of a game plan perspective offensively. I think they're in this game from start to finish, but in the end, Tennessee gets a three point victory, but I think it's high hmm. scoring in the area in the 30s 33 30, 37 34. But Va Tech covers the number. They're 10 and a half. 11-point underdogs tonight in the Battle of Bristol. Joe, I'm going to create a new word here. I, you love Justin so much. I, can I say that you are fluente in Hokies football <laughs> at am. this point? Very because, fluente. <laughs> yeah, you are, you are fluente in Vatek football. Listen, I, I really like the points. I, I think this spread is north of 10, which to me is, is ridiculous based on what we saw out of Tennessee last week. I, I 
Bud Foster's defense against that offensive line of Virginia, uh, of Tennessee, I think, really favors Virginia Tech. I just don't know what to expect from that Vatech offense. I, I think that's the reason why they can't pull through with a victory. I have it Tennessee 29, Virginia Tech 21. The star of the show in Bristol will be the Tennessee defense, which I don't think gets enough credit. So moral victory for Vatech, real victory for Tennessee. They get to live to see another day as a possible SEC East contender. We'll talk about this game quick. Tommy Armstrong in Nebraska taking on Wyoming, who knocked off Northern Illinois last week. Again, Rich, when I look yeah. at this, a lot of pressure on Mike Riley, but I think the Cornhuskers dominate this number and this matchup mm-hmm. against Wyoming. I think they have to. Yeah, the interesting thing for me in this game, Joe, is just the the uh, storyline of, of Craig Bowl coming back to his hometown of Lincoln. He's the Wyoming head coach, uh, three-time national championship head coach at North Dakota State, was passed over twice by the Nebraska administration when it was time to, to hire a head coach. And I think Craig, Craig Bowl has his kids inspired in this game, maybe competitive for the first half. They don't actually pull out the victory, but Wyoming is strong on the offensive line. They'll run the ball with Brian Hill. They have a quarterback who can pitch it around and provide a little bit of a compliment. So I just think, I'm glad you brought this one up. I think it's a competitive game in the first half, and it's a spirited effort from Craig Bowles' kids. Incredible. When you think about it, they were able to run the football last week. It's an intriguing matchup because, again, a lot of pressure on Mike Riley and this offense. Yeah. You know, If they come out lackluster or somehow they lose this game, all eyes will be on Mike Riley. But this is what it's all about. Last week, we gave you Southern Miss as an upset special. We'll th- I'm going to throw another one out there. Look out for Akron on the road against Wisconsin. Mm. Akron last year, third best rushing defense in FBS, only allowed 83 rushing yards per game. Terry Bowden and the crew will be up in this battle. Look for the hangover effect in Camp Randall. Akron plays Wisconsin very, very tough. Stay with us all season long. For Rich Sermonello, this is Joe Lisi. Have a great weekend, everyone. College football. Football is the best.